from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. This is Ron Jose. I'm a senior editor with the Credit Union National Association. Ryan Donovan is CUNA's chief advocacy officer. Donovan led CUNA's recent efforts in supporting the passage of the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act, also known as S-2155. The new law provides much-needed regulatory relief for credit unions built up since the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act. Ryan joined CUNA as Vice President of Legislative Affairs in September 2007 and was promoted to Senior Vice President in September 2011 and to Chief Advocacy Officer in January 2015. Prior to joining CUNA, Ryan worked for the California Nevada Credit Union Leagues as Director of Federal Government Affairs. He also served as a member of the congressional staffs of Representative Brad Sherman, who represented the Democratic Party from the state of California, and former House Democratic leader Richard Gebhardt of Missouri. Here, Ryan discusses the success of S-2155 and also offers advice on how credit union advocates can engage with lawmakers on other issues affecting credit unions when legislators return home for their summer breaks. It's a pretty good time to be CUNA's uh, advocacy guy. President Trump signed into law the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, which is a key piece of regulation for credit unions. CUNA supported the the bill from the earliest negotiations in the Senate and remained engaged with it with the leagues and credit unions through its passage. Do you feel it did you feel a sense of relief, a sense of elation, or something in between? Well, thanks, Ron, for having me. I think we felt a sense of accomplishment, but also a sense that there was still a lot more work to be done. Uh, the S2155, that's that's how we refer to the uh, to the bill, I know it's got a, a, a much longer title, but S2155, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they would call it a technical corrections bill. It'd be something Congress uh, did pretty much pro forma uh, after a major piece of legislation was enacted. But in this case, getting the type of relief that uh, we were able to achieve through S2155 took us quite a long time. Um, it was much harder than it should have been. And the result... I think uh, still leaves uh, much to be desired, even though it is a very important piece of legislation that's going to provide a lot of benefit to credit unions. And specifically, what kind of what kind of relief does it provide credit unions? I would start with the provision that exempts one to four family non-owner occupied residential um, mortgages from the member business lending cap. It's a that's a mouthful, I know. But that provision alone, taking those loans out of the MBL cap, should free up about 4 to $5 billion of cap space. What that will do is it'll allow those credit unions to make more business loans in their community. It may also encourage some credit unions to make more one to four family non-owner occupied loans. Uh, so a great benefit, and that's just one provision of the bill. We will also see benefit from changes to the qualified mortgage rule uh, and to the uh, HMDA requirements that are going to mean credit unions will spend less money to comply with those regulations and take that savings and invest it in their members. 
Uh, there's even a provision uh, like the, uh, it's called the Senior Safe Act. What this provision does is it says that uh, if you're a credit union employee and you report um, suspected uh, elder financial abuse, that you have a safe harbor. Well, that could save credit unions money uh, in the long run if they don't have to uh, spend it to fend off a potential lawsuit. So just a number of different ways that this legislation uh, will uh, impact credit unions. Now, I think the term you used was a technical, it was, it's a technical correction. And that technical correction was, to, I believe it was to the Dodd-Frank Act. I think that's what you were referring to. Yeah. Is that correct? That's right. And I know Dodd-Frank was well-intentioned, but it became apparent that the regulations that were intended for the, the bad actors would be, would be onerous for s- smaller financial institutions. When did the impact on credit unions first become apparent? Well, we knew in the in the discussions uh, on Dodd Frank that it was going to impact credit unions, and our goal through that process was to try to minimize that uh, impact. We didn't support the Dodd Frank Act. Um, we had a an issue in in that legislation with uh, the Durbin Amendment, if you uh, might recall that. Um, sure. And we also had concerns uh, regarding uh, the CFPB. We stated from the beginning that we understood that consumers uh, were in need of greater financial protection. Uh, you know, going back to 2009, that that was uh, not in doubt uh, whatsoever. But really, once the CFPB stood up, our first indication that uh, there was uh, going to be some uh, discord really came uh, with the remittance rule. Um, that was one of the first times that we uh, understood that the Bureau wasn't serious about using its authority to mitigate the impact of its rules on small entities like credit unions. That initial remittance rule, frankly, it was insulting to credit unions because of the low threshold that it had regarding the exemption from the from the rule, um, and even still, the final rule that took that threshold from twenty five to one hundred remittances, that fell short of what uh, what it would needed to keep credit unions in the market. And as a result, we've seen about half the credit unions that did remittances before that rule went into effect. They've either left the market or uh, they've reduced their offerings. And what that's meant is that instead of consumers having access to remittance services provided by the credit unions that they own, they're forced right into the hands of the entities that the rule was created for that perpetrated the abuses that required the rule. That was very early on in the Bureau's uh, existence. And it was quite disappointing because credit unions, you know, we are the, the original consumer financial protectors, and we had hoped that the Bureau would work with us to ensure that consumers had the protections that they needed. But that initial leadership of the Bureau took the view that they wanted radical, one-size-fits-all rules, credit unions, and frankly, community banks be damned. And that was our first indication that um, we had a problem with the Bureau. And I know you said... Kind of to backtrack a little bit, I know you said that there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Despite the passage of S twenty one fifty five, but but this is this is obviously a very good start. Can you kind of talk a little bit about why this was so important for credit union members? Sure. Anything that we do that helps credit unions provide more services to their members is a benefit to the members. I mean, that's sort of stating the obvious. And the way 
that we do it in, in public policy is by reducing the unnecessary or the overburdensome um, regulatory requirements that they have. Part of regulation is to make sure that the entities that are conducting the activity are operating within the, within the box. Well, credit unions always operate in the middle of the box. They're very rarely operating on, on the edges near where the regulation is designed to, um, uh, to curtail them. So in, in a lot of cases, regulations that are designed to curtail the abuses of, of Wall Street banks and, and non-bank providers, you know, they're simply not relevant to credit unions. And the imposition of them on credit unions uh, reduces the ability to impact uh, credit union members positively. So that's, that's our approach to and why regulatory relief legislation is so important. If you prevent credit unions from having to do things to satisfy uh, a government regulation designed for abusers or consumers, then they have more time and resources to dedicate to the service of their members. One thing we're all very proud of here at CUNA was the grassroots efforts, the kind of the coordination with the leagues and the credit unions to keep this bill top of mind throughout the system and right down through to our volunteer board members. Can you kind of tell us a, a little bit about all the grassroots efforts and what everybody did within the system? Yeah, it's a great question, Ron. You know, grassroots is the credit union advocacy machine's bread and butter. I'm going to take a few steps back. We'll get into the grassroots, but really this, uh, the success was built on a on what we call a 360-degree advocacy strategy. And when we approach issues from the 360-degree perspective, what that means in, a, in the context of legislation like this is that we're saturating policymakers with our message, both here in Washington and back home. Uh, we're not just doing it through uh, lobbyist visits or our league visits, but we're doing it through uh, grassroots meetings. We're doing it through grassroots communication, digital media, earned media, paid media. You know, the old saying is say it seven, uh, seven times, seven ways. And, and we kind of put that to practice uh, in, our, in our advocacy efforts. Our, our decision to really proceed uh, with a regulatory relief agenda for this Congress uh, was really made the night of the election in 2016, when, uh, when President Trump won and voters returned a, uh, a Republican Congress uh, to Washington. Uh, we knew that that we had tremendous opportunity, that we had the ingredients that were necessary for us to be successful. Uh, we also knew that uh, that su- success wouldn't be a foregone conclusion. You know, you've, you've got to actually do the work and take the steps in order to see the success uh, on issues like this. So we began by considering who we needed to influence, particularly in the U.S. Senate, where we knew we had to get 60 votes in order to pass anything. And at the time, there were, I think, 52 Republican um, senators. We felt pretty good about holding the uh, Republican senators together, but we were still eight votes short. And Chairman Crapo of the Banking Committee uh, told us very early on in the, in the session that he'd be happy to work on regulatory relief, provided that we get, um, we get him the votes uh, to, to move the bill through the Senate. He didn't want to do a lot of work on a bill that wasn't going to move. And frankly, neither did we. So, you know, the first step in our in our grassroots efforts was identifying uh, who we needed to influence in the in the Senate, and then thinking about what type of campaign would be necessary to get to them and to influence them. And so, we we selected our targets. 
We, uh, we did a number of online ads and some, and some print ads and some radio ads uh, encouraging uh, these senators to be a part of this process. We expanded that to the, to the full Senate and then also started with, um, with some key House targets uh, as well in, in the second phase of our plan. Um, and then we built uh, additional earned media. We had uh, leagues across the country place op-eds and letters to the editor. Uh, sometimes they did it in conjunction with their state banking association, if you can imagine that. You know, at the end of the day, our digital campaign yielded 110 million social media impressions. We had um, credit unions go out through the membership activation program. They contacted more than 2 million credit union members, and uh, we had 64 uh, media placements, op-eds, letters to the editor in 26 states, um, and we ran radio and digital ads on uh, in, in 43 states. So we also brought tens of thousands of communications to Capitol Hill, uh, email communications and letters. We did 2,000 meetings with policymakers uh, since the beginning of uh, 2017. So 360-degree advocacy was alive and well uh, in this campaign, and it was instrumental to our success. Yeah, it really shows the it really shows the credit unions our strengths um, as a as a as a movement. I guess not to not to use that word loosely. Um, just our ability to collaborate and uh, our strength with consumers, and as you said, with the leagues, that we are we're just not to be taken lightly. It's really as I, as anybody involved with credit unions, I think it's really gratifying. Yeah, Ron, it, 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 you know, from my perspective, it validated the strategy, but more importantly, yeah. it helped us develop some muscle memory. You know, we're in an environment right now where very little is getting done in Washington. I don't know this for an absolute fact, but my recollection is that this is one of the first bills, it's certainly one of the first bills to come out of the banking committee in several years that has gone regular order in the United States Senate and passed on a bipartisan basis. You know, we got two thirds of the Senate to vote in favor of this legislation. We're just not seeing that uh, in the Senate these days. We're not seeing it in Congress. So we validated our strategy, but then we also learned how to walk the path to legislative success in this era of gridlock, which I think bodes very well for us uh, going forward. Yeah, that's exactly what I was speaking to, too. Uh, People were really energized. I mean, people throughout the system, it was was really wonderful. It was really democracy in action, and it was just great to see. Back to your initial point, uh, you know, in opening this, it is a really great time to be a credit union advocate. Uh, Folks folks do appreciate and enjoy a victory, and and my message is now, that's great. Thank you very much, and let's get back to work. We've got a lot that we need to get done. And actually, that leads me to my next point. I mean— Going forward, what are your current top-of-mind advocacy issues for CUNA and America's credit unions? Well, so in the congressional schedule is kind of truncated this year uh, because of the election. And frankly, the Supreme Court vacancy is going to uh, complicate matters, I think, a little bit further as uh, Congress is going to take a good part, or at least the Senate will take a good part of the fall to deal with that. And it's going to be interesting to see how that debate influences other other debates. But from now to the end of the year, we're going to keep working with members of uh, the House and the Senate on a second tranche of regulatory relief uh, legislation. 
Uh, it's possible that we could get some things done. I don't think we're going to see the same type of small bank and credit union uh, reg relief bill that we saw is S2155 from a process perspective. We're more likely to see our reg relief measures ride along other pieces of moving legislation between now and the end of the year. And really the, the top target there is um, delaying the risk-based capital proposal. Uh, there's a, a piece of legislation that passed the House of Representatives uh, just in the last 10 days or so that would delay that rule uh, for uh, two years. And so we're hopeful to see that through. The other uh, issue uh, in Congress that is uh, really high on our radar screen is uh, the nominations uh, both for the director of the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection as well as uh, the NCUA board. So the president uh, in the last three weeks has nominated Kathy Kraninger to be the director of the Bureau of uh, Consumer Financial Protection and uh, Rodney Hood to be a member of the National Credit Union Administration Board. We'll uh, be engaged in those uh, nomination hearings and uh, in that process. We hope the Senate will consider those nominations. We have an interest at the, at the, at the Bureau for there to be permanent leadership. We have an acting director right now, and he's done a great job of uh, really uh, taking stock of what the Bureau has been doing. He's made some changes, but we know that uh, real relief from the CFPB is going to come when there's a permanent director. And so we appreciate the president making the nomination, and uh, we're hopeful the Senate's going to um, consider it uh, later this summer. Uh, same thing goes with the NCUA board as well. So Rodney Hood has been um, nominated to uh, succeed Rick Metzger uh, on the NCUA board. Mr. Hood is uh, no stranger to the credit union system, having served on NCUA's board previously. And uh, we're hopeful that that his uh, tenure on the NCUA board uh, and his experience in the industry uh, will um, lead the Senate to consider his, uh, comp his nomination as well. We continue to do work on the Americans with Disabilities Act litigation that uh, many credit unions have uh, faced related to website accessibility. Uh, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, uh, there's a uh, rulemaking process at the Federal Communications Commission that we've been actively engaged in. There are some things that, uh, you know, we were very successful in the tax reform process last year. The credit unions weren't taxed. They weren't, there wasn't even any discussion of credit unions being taxed. But there were some provisions in that bill that have an impact on credit unions, particularly as they relate to uh, executive compensation and the imposition of an excise tax on certain executive compensation paid by nonprofits. We're hopeful that we'll get a technical correction uh, in a piece of legislation later this year that clarifies that uh, disbursements from 457F plans uh, don't count as compensation for purposes of this uh, excise tax. But that's one of those things where we are dependent on legislation that, if it moves, is going to move at the end of the year, probably after the election. And we're also dependent on the outcome of the election producing the conditions that are right for a lame duck, uh, a lame duck session. So um, we continue to work on that, but there's a lot that's out of our control there. As we look into 2019, Ron, we're we're really looking to develop an advocacy agenda that helps us move some additional charter enhancements. So very grateful that we got a charter enhancement through part of the reg relief process. That was the one to four family provision. Um, but there's more that needs to be done. You know, the Federal Credit Union Act was enacted in 1934 and it was last meaningfully updated in 1998. 
there's areas of the act that relate to credit union structure, credit union powers, and even the structure of the National Credit Union Administration that, um, that need to be addressed. Uh, so we're going into this uh, looking at uh, the entire act, but I would say our approach is probably going to be more targeted, more narrow, and uh, we're excited to get that process uh, kicked off here this summer with the hopes of being ready to go uh, when the new Congress sits in January. As we discuss this, we're in the middle of summer, and if I'm not mistaken, the House is in recess during August, and the Senate is scheduled to be in recess tentatively August 6th through 10th. And we always emphasize that credit unions, unions should try to meet with their lawmakers during their time at home. How important is that? I know we, 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 it's something we emphasize time and again. Can you, can you tell our listeners how important that is? Yeah. Listen, I don't want to take anything away from CUNA's Governmental Affairs Conference. Everybody should come to CUNA's GSC yes. in March and participate in the, in the meetings. But for my money, there is no better time to meet with a member of Congress than when they are at home in their district. Uh, there's a number of advantages uh, to doing that. A, you're going to get more time with the actual member of Congress. And B, I, listen, I work for two, two members of Congress. I work for a third now in, in Jim Nussel. I will tell you that these guys are much, and gals are much more relaxed when they are in their district than when they are in the District of Columbia. Um, they're not uh, distracted. They're not being pulled away for votes or for other meetings. If you get a meeting with a member of Congress in their district, uh, it's going to be a very valuable experience. You know, that was one of the reasons why when I worked uh, many years ago for the California Credit Union League, I, I started this program in California and in Nevada called Hike the Hill at Home. So taking, taking the name from, of course, uh, CUNA's Hike the Hill program, but really having that emphasis of uh, the district meetings. And so it's incredibly important to do the meetings. It's always important to maintain the relationship that credit unions have with members of Congress, but it's particularly uh, important and impactful to do it in, um, in August when they're at home. Do you have any advice um, for credit unions, how they can kind of frame our narrative and tell our story to lawmakers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the best advice that I could give someone going into a meeting with a member of Congress is do in that meeting exactly what you do at your credit union, which is put your members first, put them in the center of um, of what you're talking about. Talk about how you're serving your members and your and what's impacting your ability to serve them. That's the key difference between what we do and why we do what we do and uh, what the banks do. We can't make enough hay about the differences in our structure and our mission relative to the other providers in the financial services space. And we ought to be proud that we're different because that difference matters to our members. And then there's one thing I would be, be remiss if I did not mention. CUNA offers what we call the Campaign for Common Sense Regulation Toolkit. Can you explain what that is for us? Yeah, it's a it's a toolkit that uh, we use, and there's a there's a microsite website that's associated with it to help credit unions tell that story. It gives us facts and figures uh, on how the various proposals that were that Congress is considering or regulators might be considering how they may impact credit unions. It helps us deliver talking points to our advocates and message points for our emails to credit union members. 
it, it it's a it's a one stop shop for a credit union that wants to get engaged in in this effort. And it's accompanied by a website, um, commonsenseregulations.com, that helps us tell that story uh, more from more to the public audience. So uh, there's a lot of coordination. We really do treat this work as a campaign. We've got a lot of folks here at CUNA that have campaign experiences. So we want to make sure that it's coordinated, that there's a sense of urgency associated with it, and importantly, that the folks that are engaging in advocacy on our behalf have the tools that they need to help us deliver the message. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.